So I'm going to ask you a strange question. I don't want you to dwell on it too long, um, just because, uh, you know, I don't want you to be thinking about it so much that you're not listening to the rest of everything that I'm going to say. But if you had 24 hours to live, what would you do with your time? Uh, some of you might come up with some crazy answers thinking, okay, how far can I drive to the place that I want to go to? Or how fast can I get to the airport and get on the plane? Or maybe you can join, um, was it the owner of Amazon and fly to the out and outer space, those kinds of things. Um, maybe you, you would purchase some extravagant gift that you've always wanted, but you know, you can't afford because, Hey, you're not going to be around to pay for it. Um, but I think for most of us, you know, we, we would spend that time with those that we love the most. I realize it's a difficult question to answer. Um, we are yet, though, given the example of one man who knew exactly how long he had to live. And while he knew when he would die, he remained in absolute control over how he acted. Now, this man is Jesus, our Savior. It's recorded in the Gospels of how Jesus spent his last day. And it's not written from the perspective of, oh, now we know what that last day was. But we read it in the Gospels with the perspective of he knew every step that he walked on this earth was leading him to the cross. And he knew when it was going to happen. And this is how he lived that last day of his life. And so what did he do? Well, John, in the Gospel of John, zeroes in on this last day of Jesus' life. And he draws our attention to what took place in the upper room in Jerusalem as Jesus spent that last night with his disciples. And what did he do for them? Well, he washed their feet as an example of humble service. And he said, you do likewise, because the student isn't greater than the master. They shared in what we call the Lord's table as he broke bread and and shared the cup as a symbolic gesture of what was going to take place that next day as he died on the cross. And he taught his disciples. And when you read in, in the Gospel of John around John chapter 17, you have this, what we call the upper discourse. And he spent a lot of time talking and leaving final encouragements with these men that he had walked with for three years. And it's interesting what he says in this last day of his life, in these last hours that he has, that I want to focus on uh, just for a minute. In the final days of Jesus' life and ministry, he spent more time caring for others and praying that his people would be unified. That's how he spent his last hours. In John 17, three times in verse 11, verses 20 and 21, and in verse 22, Jesus prayed that his disciples would, be, would remain one. Unity within the body of Christ 
was of primary importance to the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality of that unity is revealed in John 17. And so in John 17, verse 23, Mike, can I get the cursor on proclaim? Um, In verse 23, it says, I and them, and you and me, this is Jesus speaking, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and he's speaking to the Father, and love them even as you loved me. So you get the sense that when Jesus was concerned in these last hours of what it was going to be like for him to go and his people to stay, that he wanted his people to know that while he's gone, his primary concern was that these people, not just the people in that room, but the people that would know and follow him based on the example and witness of his disciples going out would remain one. They would be unified. They would be together in him in the body of Christ. And that would create the opportunity for those people to be a witness to the world, to see the saving love that comes from God the Father through His Son, Jesus. Now, why do I bring this up in Romans 15? Because although our Savior prayed for us to be unified, for His church to be unified together. And although Jesus shed his blood so that we would remain in him one, the church that has followed for the last 2,000 years has often been known for its disunity rather than its unity. Now, it's taken us a while to work through this portion of Romans because of Christmas and and our uh, creation uh, seminars last week. And and just to kind of remind ourselves, since Romans 14, 1, the Apostle Paul has been writing to the church in Rome about the importance of staying together. Now, we've framed that with the understanding of what Paul has been introducing in this chapter, uh, in chapter 14, and now in the chapter 15, uh, the idea of Christian liberty, that we're not always going to agree on everything, that sometimes some people are going to have certain convictions that say you shouldn't do certain things, and and believers over here are going to say, yeah, but no, we're not bound up to those things anymore, and they're going to disagree. And so Paul says, listen, you're going to disagree, but while you disagree, understand that there's still some more important things to focus on, and don't divide over those things, and don't look at each other with these cascading looks of saying, hey, you know, you're weak in your faith, and you're weak in your faith, and we can't be together kind of behavior. And Paul wrote that to a church that was born out of those disciples that met with Jesus in the upper room and heard him say, be unified. And we're just not even, we're half a generation away from Jesus' death and these words that Paul wrote to this church. And we talked about over the last few weeks about all the crazy ways that we can disagree with each other. I mean, this is a big deal for Paul. He's devoting a chapter and a half to this concept of staying unified. 
And Paul understands that unity is a fragile thing because it's so easy for us to get our feathers all ruffled over things that are really not that important. And so we want to see in this passage that the responsibility to remain unified is rooted in our ability to follow the example of our Savior, to follow His example as we hear His words and understand what it means to be unified. And Jesus never ministered from selfish ambition. He always ministered from a heart of selflessness, giving of Himself with no thought of what it meant for him in return. And so it's in this way that we're challenged to be like Jesus. We've looked at some of the ways and reasons we've disagreed and divided over the years, uh, most, mostly for the wrong reasons. You know, sometimes there, there are good biblical reasons to divide. If there's a doctrinal defection, if there is some change in, in the way that, that people are living as a result of you know, following the felt needs of community versus following the direction and guidance of Scripture. There are reasons for churches to divide. But a lot of the time, um, we settle for far less because those are the things that we gravitate to. And we've talked about some of those things, preferences, prejudices, stubbornness, but I came across another example, and, the, and this was providential for our prayer time as Brian led us in prayer in the Lord's Prayer. This, um, he, there was an example of, I, I heard of two small churches that were in the same community, like just kind of hanging on kind of churches, and they got the idea that, hey, to be more effective and, and to have a, a better footprint to minister to the community around us, why don't these two small churches come together and form one church. And they thought it would be better to merge and become united. It was a good idea, but they were not able to pull it off. The problem was they could not agree on how they would recite the Lord's Prayer. Now, Brian didn't know I was going to say that. See, and, and it gets even better because you specifically said, Brian, when we pray, we're going we're gonna, to uh, pray for trespasses, right? That's what divided them. The one group wanted or preferred forgive us our trespasses, and the other group demanded forgive us our debts. And they couldn't come together. Isn't that silly? It's absurd. A local newspaper was reporting on this because that's what small towns do. They report on those kinds of things. And they wrote in the newspaper article, one church went back to its trespasses while the other returned to its debts. (laughs) And as we look to strengthen the unity of our church, I pray that we wouldn't settle for anything less than the example of our Savior. 
to be diligent to keep him at the center of who we are and all that we do. Two weeks ago, if you were with us, I reminded you, I left you with this challenge that you would take that next week and find ways that you can inject Jesus into the center of your relationships, whether they are church relationships or family relationships, a relationship at work or whatever it is, that you would find some way to make Jesus the center of that relationship. Because sometimes we we talk about all the other things, even in the church, except for our Savior. And I guarantee this, if we keep Jesus at the center of who we are and all that we do, we will be unified in our commitment to the Lord. And so we're going to build upon this idea this morning in Romans 15. We're going to look at these first six verses. Uh, Our passage this morning begins with an exhortation. An exhortation is the challenge. It's Paul says, okay, now I want you to do this. That's what an exhortation is. It's not a suggestion. It's not a if you feel like it. An exhortation is, okay, as a result of these things, live this way. It begins with the exhortation. He follows it with an example, and he culminates it with a prayer. And so let's begin with the exhortation. It's found in Romans 15, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to place his neighbor for his good to his edification. They are to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Now, this isn't anything new for Paul to introduce. In the overall discussion about Christian liberty, we've been kind of weighing the tension of the strong believer and the weak believer. And and nowhere does Paul say, okay, this is how you know. And and the test is, okay, you got to figure it out first. But what he is saying is the fundamental principles that guide the strong and the weak is the strong understand that the, the scriptures give us liberty for all sorts of things. And we talked about this, that, that many of the things that we deal with in life and making decisions are based upon our, re- our response or reaction to amoral things like food and drink and all sorts of things. The scriptures aren't very clear on what to do. They're, they're neutral, right? Now, in the Old Testament, those things were not always neutral because there was some kind of uh, protection that God was saying, as you are my people and I'm calling you out to stand in, in, in contrast to the community around you, don't partake in certain things. But we know because of Jesus and the Gospels and what Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, it's not food that makes you unclean, right? It's not what goes into you. It's what comes out of you from the heart. And what Peter revealed in the vision in the book of Acts, that all things were made clean, that that those kind of things are neutral. And yet there are some believers that hold on to those things and say, you know what? My preference is that I don't, Um, partake in those things that bring me back to a place in my journey or remind me of a season in my life where there was uh, separation from God or there was um, uh, there there was the opportunity for me to not walk as closely to the Lord and so you had these people over here saying you know what I'm going to abstain from those things and yet these people over here saying no big deal And Paul is saying, those that feel like, hey, the scriptures aren't clear, it's not a big deal, you know, I'm not sinning against the Lord, I'm not sinning against my conscience, it was no big deal. 
Those are the people that Paul refers to as the strong believers. Now, don't hear strength and weakness as better and worse. I think that's what we do sometimes. We hear what Paul says in Romans 15, 1. Now, we who are strong and think, oh, well, that's me because I want to be the strong Christian. I don't want to be the person that's wrestling with these things because that must mean I'm weak and I'm a lesser Christian. Paul isn't saying greater and lesser. He's saying strong and weak for those who are stronger in their faith that understand that there are things in the scriptures that are really not a big deal. And we can walk and follow Jesus and not be caught up in all the rules and systems and religious kind of expectations of following the Lord. But what he says is if you're strong, and the emphasis now is those that don't have all of those like lines drawn in the sand kind of convictions. He, he says to the strong, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Now, the first thing that, that I love what Paul does here is when he's calling the strong to, to the exhortation is he includes himself in the exhortation. That's good teaching. To hold yourself accountable to the same standard that you're expecting people to follow. He says, we who are strong ought to bear. Now, there, there's a couple words there that are important. The first word is ought. I don't know how many times you use the word ought in your, uh, in your regular conversation, but the word ought comes from the word owe. And the actual word in the Greek carries with it the idea of paying back a debt. And so Paul is saying that the strong, and do you see this? We've been talking about this all throughout Romans 14 and now in the 15. The strong believers are the ones that can live without all of the stuff that traps us. But it's the strong ones who are in their faith that should be living in such a way that in their strength, they are looking out for those who are not as strong in their faith. Like there's a built-in protection in the body of Christ to help each person be conformed to the image of Christ. But when we start like building fences, and I'm not talking about tall fences. I'm talking about, you know, like just the low, like two or three foot fence, you know, where like you can see over, but you can't cross over. When you start building these kind of fences in, in the fellowship of the body of Christ, you end up dividing. You can see each other, but you're not able to draw close to each other. You're not able to visit each other. And what Paul says is it's up to the strong. They owe the debt to the body of Christ, to the Lord himself, to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Now, this word bear doesn't mean, not that kind of bear. It means to carry a burden. Paul talks about this in Galatians 6 too. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Paul 
is exhorting them, the strong, not to dominate the weak, but to share or shoulder their burdens. Now, this means more than just tolerance for different views. Saying, okay, we can be in the same room together. Even though I disagree with you, I can still sit next to you. Now, it's it's not talking about that. The strong should attempt to understand where the weak are coming from and why, as well as adopt a loving approach uh, for them on a whole. Like, in spite of those things, I love you in Christ. I'm not going to make a big deal about the things that you still make a big deal about. You know what that also means? You're not going to roll your eyes. You're not going to have the condescending tone. You're not going to like be like, I guess I'll put up with you. And maybe we don't do that. And and hopefully, thankfully, we don't do that like visibly. But don't we do that inside? Like you're just kind of like biting your lips saying, oh man, how much more time do I have to stand here and listen to this? Paul wants the strong to show empathy towards the weak and a sympathetic awareness of the problem. Now, it would be like a parent. Now, I, I wish I could say I've never done this. Um, but it would be like a parent in their frustration saying to their child, why don't you just grow up? Do you ever think that or say that out loud? Why don't you just grow up? Well, problem is, they're not grown up yet. That's the same thing with the strong and the weak. To look at them in that way and say, why don't you just grow up? Well, they're still immature in the faith, growing in the faith, learning, seeing, sensing. And by your example of showing love to them, even though you disagree over some, you know, these like secondary convictional issues, that you're able to say, you know what, that person still loves me. Even though we disagree, we're not going to fight over how we say the Lord's Prayer. We're not going to divide over those things. We live towards the community, as Paul says at the end of verse 1, so as not just to please ourselves. And he's referring to the strong. He says, you don't do this. You don't live in such a way so that you can just please yourself. Those who are strong in their faith understand more and more that liberty does not give us license to please ourselves. But it means that we look to those who are struggling with certain things, and we are willing to give up our rights for the sake of their faith. I've said that a few times over the last few weeks. I I hope it's starting to sink in, not because I'm saying it, because God's Word is saying it, that we who are strong would willingly put those things aside, that, that we know that it's not an issue for the sake of the weak so that it doesn't become an issue for them. Because a matter of them stumbling and violating their conscience, it becomes sin to us. And we don't want to act or live that way towards each other. And so what do we do? Well, verse 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. We do so for their good and edification. It's not done with a spirit of condescension or resignation. With humility, with love, with patience, we please our neighbor. Now that's the thing we miss. 
those who disagree about secondary issues are still our neighbor. Now, we might not do it within the confines of like a walled church building like this, but we do it when we refer to other quote-unquote churches, right? Like we think, oh, they believe that? Oh, they worship that way? They're they're over there. We're not going to associate with them. For real. God's church has been guilty of fracturing the opportunity for fellowship and relationship over secondary issues. And we don't treat our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ as our neighbor because they're over there and we're over here. Paul says, not so in the body of Christ. There's no factions and there's no cold shoulders. The goal is to help the weak grow in the Lord to build them up for their edification. That's what it means to edify, to build up, to help them grow in the likeness of Jesus. Strengthening their fellow believers. And so that's the exhortation. That's the doing thing. What's the example? More importantly, who's the example? Look at verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The example is Jesus. Oh, how simple to say and know, and yet how profound it is to follow his example. I think for every Christian, they would say, yes, Jesus is our example. When you start drilling into what it means to follow Jesus as our example, you begin to understand the weight that, it, that falls, like to really live and follow like he lived and served and ministered. I'll say it this way. If you as a, a child of God who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, if you in your life were 100% committed to following Jesus in everything that you thought, said and did. I think it's fair to say that your life would look really different. I know mine would. Like, isn't that the battle? Isn't that the, oh my gosh, this is life-changing, upside-down living, thinking, responding, reacting, all those things. To truly follow Jesus the way that he lived and served, to follow his words, to follow his example, it changes everything about our lives. But don't we know that his ways, yes, are higher than ours, but don't we know that his ways are always better? I mean, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's come to give rest for our souls. And here we are holding on to the things in our lives that we don't want to let go of because we think, well, hey, I have a right to this. And Paul says, no, if you're strong in your faith, follow the example of Jesus and follow his example in that he served in such a way that he didn't please himself. 
And so for the first time in the book of Romans, something that Paul hasn't done for the preceding 14 chapters, he holds the example of Christ up to enforce the argument that he's making. He's like, I'm calling you to do this. Now I'm going to show you the example of Jesus. This is how important this is to Paul as he's sharing to this church. Don't divide over secondary things. It's in Jesus that we can see the difference between a people pleaser and a people lover. Sacrificing his own preferences for the welfare of others did not make Jesus acceptable to everyone, but it did make him acceptable to the Father. Jesus lived and served for the will of God. Jesus' earthly life culminated in reproach. That's what we read at the end of verse 3. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, this word reproach means slander or insult. So as Jesus is living on the earth, serving and ministering to people, Paul says that there's a verse in the Old Testament, and that verse is found in Psalm 69, verse 9 is spoken over the life and ministry of Jesus. That the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The slander and insults that people have towards a holy God are directed towards Jesus in his life and ministry as the Son of God who came to serve and not be served. And what's interesting about this quote from Psalm 69, verse 9, is it's spoken by King David. He's the writer of Psalm 69, verse 9. And he writes it as he's writing about the love or zeal that he has in the commitment to build a house for God. In Psalm 69, David wants to build the temple. And if you follow David's life in First and Second Samuel, you, you see that he wanted to build God a house, a, a, a permanent structure to live in the city of Jerusalem so that God could live with his people. And under the Old Testament economy, that's how it was set up, that God would dwell in this temple. Now, because David was a man of war, God said, you can't build the temple, but you can make the plans. Your son, Solomon, is going to build the temple. And so when David is writing about his love and zeal for the commitment to build God a house, Paul borrows those same words to refer to Jesus' life and ministry. And he says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The insults, right? David has this zeal to build God a house. And people are saying, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. Why would you do that? As Jesus served and lived and and ministered to people, you know, like the people that were cast off, like tax collectors and sinners, like lepers, like the blind, the lame, people that had issues, medical issues, and psychological issues, demon-possessed people, all people that were cast away from society. They were not in the religious norm. They did not fit the blueprint of what it meant to go to temple and be a religious person. Those are the people that Jesus went to and ministered to. And he invited them in. He didn't push them away. And as he invited them in, people would look at Jesus and say, truly, that's not who God is. And they would insult him. 
When Jesus served and ministered, he was ultimately rejected because he lived the life that God wanted him to live here on the earth. And we read in Isaiah 53, verse 3, speaking prophetically, 700 years before this would happen, the prophet Isaiah says this about Jesus. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. That's how they treated God's son. The reproach fell on him. And the strong in their faith are to give up their preferences, to reach over to the weak and follow the example of Jesus and say, you know what, I would rather be with you in Christ than the fight over these silly things. That's what this passage is talking about. We read in Philippians 2, building on this idea of the example of Jesus. First, Paul calls believers to a humble deference in the body of Christ. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also the interest of others. And what Paul does here is he lays the exhortation and then he follows it with the example In verses 5 through 8, so that the people in Philippi, the believers in Philippi, don't say, Paul, that seems kind of harsh. That seems impossible. Why would you call us to do that? Paul says, let's look to Jesus again. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's how we are to live towards one another. So what Paul does is he lays this example, is he gives us the example of Jesus, and he gives us a second example in verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The, the example in verse 4 is what he refers to in Psalm 69 in verse 3. The, the example is that we have the scriptures to encourage us. The scriptures, those words written in earlier times. This wasn't the New Testament. They didn't have a New Testament yet. They had the Old Testament. And Paul says about those Old Testament books, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so what does he say? Well, let's talk about this just for a second, the importance of the Old Testament even for a New Testament believer, a person that believes in the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, you should be rooted in what the Old Testament teaches. You might say, well, that, th- those were for Jewish people. Those words for Jewish people, they don't apply to us. Well, maybe all the laws don't apply to us. 
But the principles and the character of God applies to us. And so we need to root our life in Christ in the foundational truths that are found in the Old Testament. Paul shines a light into the Old Testament to give us motivation for enduring and gives encouragement as we seek to remain faithful in our commitment to do God's will. When you read the Old Testament, you read the stories about all the men and women that followed God faithfully. What should that do in your life? It should fan the flame of faith in your life. When you read about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and the judges, and and David, and Solomon, and all the people that came, all the prophets like Elijah, and, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Daniel, and Ezekiel, and all those people that we read about and know about. When you read those stories, and you walk away coming in contact with the living God that was working on behalf of these people, what should that do to your faith? You shouldn't close the pages and say, oh, that was great good for them. You should walk away from that saying, oh my word, isn't God certainly good? And yet we, we sometimes look at these stories and say, oh great, good for them. Yeah, Daniel in a lion's den, friends in a fiery furnace. Oh, the walls of Jericho came down when Joshua walked around it. Great. woo That's your God working on their behalf. And so when Paul shines this light into the Old Testament, he says we, we stay rooted in the scriptures that were written for what purpose? To give perseverance and encouragement to us. To us who are strong in our faith so that we don't settle for lesser things and fight over secondary issues, but that we press on in the faith. You need to read and rest in the Old Testament as much as you read and rest in the New Testament. Read the whole counsel of the Word of God. We talk about this with our Awana clubbers a lot. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture, right? All Scripture is inspired by God. Every word in this book is living and active. It is the very breath of God speaking to us. These are not the thoughts and opinions of religious people. This is the very Word of God. And God is speaking every time you read His words. And it's profitable. There's gain for us. It's not a... A mindless exercise of saying, well, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to read my Bible, so I guess I'll do that. No, it's profitable. There's benefit in it. Why? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And what is the ultimate gain? So that the man of God, and and let me just say man of God isn't just male, that the person of God, male or female, is adequate and equipped for every good work, Oh, those good works that Paul wrote about in Ephesians 2 that says that God prepared beforehand so that you could walk through them. So that you're ready to do the things that God wants you to do because you know what his word says because he's speaking to you. So we have the exhortation, we have the example, 
And now we have the prayer that Paul offers. What does he say in verses 5 and 6? Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You might want to circle the word one in verses 5 and 6 or underline it. It's repeated several times because that's the important thing that Paul wants to say, that in the body of Christ, we are not these individuals that kind of agree on the same things. We're one people. We're one. At least we should be. And so what does this mean as we unpack what Paul says in this prayer? And notice how he prays. He doesn't ask that God would help us to see everything eye to eye. He doesn't say, okay, well, you know, I I hope that the strong can see what the weak are doing, and I hope the weak can figure out what the strong are doing, and they can just kind of meet in the middle and see eye to eye on everything. No, he doesn't pray that. He asks that God would give us perseverance and encouragement. And in so doing, we would be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. That our focus then would be on the Lord as we follow Christ together. That we're not dividing over the secondary issues, even those strong convictions that we have. That we wouldn't have these camps or cliques in the body of Christ, but that we would truly be one in Jesus. The only way a church will move on from divisions is to focus on their common need for Christ and rise above their differences. Now, you might be hearing my words over the last few weeks and think, does pastor think that we have a problem here at the church? No. No, I don't. And and I'm going to give evidence of that in a a moment. Um, But what I will know is anytime individuals come together, anytime a church is more than one, there's an opportunity. and, And by the way, you can't have a church of one right? Because it's all about community and fellowship in the body of Christ. But anytime you have more than one person gathering in a place, you're going to have a difference of opinion over something. And what Paul is saying, and I hope you're understanding, is as those things creep in to our minds, that we will push them aside for the greater good of Christ. So what do I know about our church that I love and I think we all see this example often, is the evidence that Paul gives of what happens when people are united together in the name of Jesus. So that with one accord, verse 6, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what do I mean by that? I mean this, that this prayer for unity creates something beautiful in the body of Christ. That when we get this, when we live this way, when the strong are able to make uh, allowance for the weak and the weak aren't looking at the strong saying, hey, why, why aren't you doing everything that I'm doing? When we push that aside for Christ, something beautiful happens. It's that we are united in our voice towards God in praise. Listen, a quiet church is often a divisive church. You want to see where a church is in their commitment towards each other? Listen to how they sing. That's what Paul is saying here. If you're unified, 
the expression of that unity is going to be lifted up in one voice, in one accord to the Lord. And you know how I know this as an example, and I, I hope you can catch in on this? There have been times that I've been right there singing to Jesus where I can't hear anything going on on the stage. All I hear is your voice. Like, the, the instruments fade away. And we're really raising the roof of this place because of the joyful praise that we have. And what Paul says is you can't have that kind of joyful praise if you're fighting with each other, if you're distracted by all the preferences, and you're just kind of like, well, you know, that would be crazy for us to, to, to act one way towards each other and act that another way towards God. It doesn't work. And so we have this example even within here, that we are one voice when we gather. The true purpose of both the inner and the outer aspects of church life is not to expose our differences, but what does Paul say? The true purpose of why we gather in verse 6 is that with one voice we would glorify God. I hope you know this by now, but if you don't, I hope you catch this right now. That the main focus of how we are to live and be together is to give God glory. It's not for us. We are not here for ourselves. God did not save us for our benefit alone. He has saved us and brought us together in His body and has called us to the ministry that He has given us so that we can give Him glory for who He is. The goal is not theological triumph when we disagree and say, hey, I got five Bible verses for you. Grow up. It's not the goal. The goal is to, to, to grow and let those things to the side and be united in our witness for Jesus. This is the heart of the book of Romans. The glory of God is the final goal of everything. And the Romans were endangering it when they turned theology into a wrestling match. When they were fighting and, and disagreeing and all those kinds of things. Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Isn't it good? when you walk into church and you're not worried about what argument is going to erupt over whatever issue. That's good. It, it's, it allows us to focus on the right things. But understand this, that unity and this idea of maturing in Christ is not a passive thing. It is something that we need to protect Right? We willingly push aside our preferences and our, our selfish desires because there's something greater going on here. And so I just want to share my, my uh, love for you and your commitment to make Jesus the center of what we do here. And as we close, my encouragement is that we keep seeking Christ.
Be like Jesus. Don't settle for anything less than his humble example. Whether you are strong or weak in your faith, build each other up. Focus on what unites us. And in that way, we truly give glory to God for his goodness and redeeming us. So let's pray and ask God to continue to do just that.